best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everyone. Welcome to October's installment of Beer with BMSIS. This is the podcast that features the research, philosophies, and ideas of the members and friends of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. I'm Jacob Huckmisra, and thanks so much for joining us. This month, we have the Dr. Reverend Lucas Mix uh, joining us to tell us about the zombie broccoli, what aliens and souls can tell us about ourselves. Uh, but first, to kick things off, we have our own Dr. Sanjoy Sam, who's going to introduce us to one of his favorite beverages. And in uh, keeping with the tradition of the show, please only imbibe alcoholic beverages if you are of age in your place of residence. Hello, everyone. This month's beverage is indeed a beer. It is, in fact, and this is maybe a bold statement, my favorite beer. I like beer a lot and several that I really enjoy. But this one I discovered last June and it's just extraordinary. It is called Lava. It is brewed in the city of Selfoss in Iceland by the Ulvisholt Brukhus, so the Ulvisholt Brew House. It is an incredible beer. It is very much full-bodied, pitch black, and it has a dense brown head. It is richly flavored with notes of dark chocolate, roasted malt, and smoke. And when you pour it in your pine glass, it's essentially as if you are pouring motor oil. It is amazing. It is uh, quite alcoholic, 9.4%. So consume with uh, moderation, but my goodness, your uh, taste buds will tickle forever. It is named Lava because from the brewery, you can see the Hekla volcano, which erupts. It's probably one of the most frequent eruptors in Iceland. Yes, highly recommended. You can buy it in the US online. It's about $10 a bottle, but it's very much worth it. So it was great pleasure that I would like to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Reverend Lucas Mix. He comes to us from Harvard University, but he originally has two bachelors from the University of Washington. So he's a fellow Husky. One, a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry, and a Bachelor of Arts in Comparative Religion. He received his PhD in Evolutionary Biology. Following his doctorate, he attended seminary at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley, California, and has been ordained priest in the Episcopal Church. After a few stints uh, here and there, particularly at the University of Arizona, he is now at Harvard working on a project to explore the meaning, purpose, and the definition of life. Dr. Lucas Mix, the floor is yours. Thank you. I like astrobiology. I've liked it since I first ran into it in 1996. I was a junior in college, and we had just found evidence of Martian life in a meteorite called Allen Hills 84001. Alien life moved from science fiction to actual science. I like astrobiology because it allows us to put some concrete boundaries on our speculation. We may not know if alien life exists, but we do know that if it does, it runs on chemical reactions like we do. We know that it stores energy and information. We think it most likely occurs on planets or moons with liquid water and abundant starlight. What could be cooler than discovering that we are not alone? And now we know where to look. Sadly, we found that the Allen Hills meteorite was not enough to convince us of life on Mars, but it spurred us to ask some very important questions about life. The questions are profound because they touch on whether we are alone in the universe. 
What makes us who we are? And do we belong to a larger group of living things? Or are we just a flash of color in the blackness of space? I like astrobiology because it allows us to wade into those areas where biology and theology overlap. Neither community would willingly cede the definition of life to the other. Biologists know that something interesting is going on, something that requires explanation. We see organisms as integrated wholes with functions and interests and behavior. We find natural selection and metabolism working wonders with organic chemistry. There's something special about perception and choice and reason, and these things only come about in living systems. So life matters to biologists, and the boundary between life and non-life matters too, because it appears to be an important dividing line in the way we explain the universe. Some stuff grows and reproduces and walks and talks, and some stuff doesn't. Theologians also care deeply about the edges of life, indeed thinkers of every religion. Christians in particular link life and value. Moses said, choose life meaning choose God and God's covenant. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, meaning that a fullness of living was to be found in him. We frequently use phrases like life after death, but how often do we really stop and think about what they mean? At the very least, we use biological life as a metaphor for some other thing called spiritual life. At most, they are simply two versions of the same thing. In fact, the Bible uses filled with God's breath to mean both. So the theologians are also invested in this question. What is life? And here, the discussion can become a bit abstract. Life, however, is concrete, intuitive, and immediate. I might even say visceral. We know it in our gut because it matters to us. It matters in what we eat and what might eat us. It matters in how we make predictions about the future and how we value things in the present. As an undergrad, I asked about life out there so that I could compare it to life here. As a postdoc, I want to know why we care about life here enough to look for it elsewhere. Not quite the same question. Because life is so visceral, we need some perspective to think about it clearly. We need to step back and figure out what is life that we are mindful of it? We need to give ourselves some examples of strange life and borderline life so that we can figure out what it is within us that places so much importance on the concept. Enter the zombie broccoli. I'm guessing you've never heard those two words together before. They both have something interesting to do with life, but in rather different senses. First, what is a zombie? It's not always the same thing, depends on which myth, movie, or comic book you subscribe to. But let me suggest that a zombie is something, or perhaps someone, who has some of the properties of life, but not all of them. We recognize a whole suite of traits that go with life in people. They grow and heal, eat and drink, walk and talk. In zombies, some of those functions have been impaired. We speak of them being reanimated. Technically, that means they have lost their soul. Anima is just the Latin word for soul, though we mistake, confuse, or conflate it with life, depending on your perspective. To reanimate is to replace the soul with something else. In zombies, the life has been replaced with some other force that replaces free will with a desire to eat brains. 
Mm, brains. Of course, free will is a dicey concept these days. The zombie soul apparently grants a body powers of movement and desire, as well as metabolism. You have to wonder how many calories a brain has, and just how many a zombie would need to eat in order to keep going, even accounting for bodily decay. At least, you wonder these things if you study the definition of life. Back to the zombie broccoli. Not just humans have movement and desires. Other animals do as well. Could a dog be turned into a zombie? Does a dog have a soul to replace? And could you tell the difference between a zombie dog and a regular dog, if the only difference is free will? What about plants? Plants grow and reproduce. They respond to stimuli. Some of them even move. Is there such a thing as zombie broccoli? Do they grow stealthily in the yard, waiting for unsuspecting cauliflower to pass by? Until the Enlightenment, souls were invoked as the dividing line between alive and not alive. They explained, or at least identified, the powers possessed by the living, but not by the dead. And because of this, they were closely associated with the value we attribute to life. Often these soulful explanations required a supernatural identity, some ideal object inserted from the realm of forms or especially created by God. Then again, they were also used in a simpler way. Aristotle thought of them as, a place, as placeholders for a specifically biological problem. There are five hard problems in biology, according to Aristotle. Nutrition, reproduction, motion, sensation, and reason. He invoked three types of souls to account for, to account for them, or perhaps only to describe them, depending on how you read him. My research focuses on just the simplest and most basic, vegetable souls. Aristotle asked this, why is it when I eat a head of broccoli, the broccoli becomes me and not the other way around? Life has this strange habit of repurposing the matter around it. We can think of that grandly as technology, or if you like, reallocation of resources. At the visceral level, it means using stuff to do stuff. We use organic matter to fuel our life. All life does. Plants capture starlight and carbon dioxide. Animals consume plants. It's a fairly complicated concept, and it all gets wrapped up in one tiny word. Eat. We eat. We eat and what we eat gives us the power to eat. That was Aristotle's great insight. He said, souls were those times when the power to do something came from and led to the doing of it. Eating gives us the power to eat so that we can continue in our eating and make little copies of ourselves that go on eating. Souls are neither more nor less than this sort of thing for Aristotle. The vegetable soul deals with nutrition and reproduction. The animal soul deals with motion and sensation. The rational soul deals with reason, thinking about things as we're doing right now. For Aristotle, the perfect life could be found in thinking about how thinking leads to the perfect life. Just like the vegetable soul, eating for the sake of eating, the rational soul, thinking for the sake of thinking, forms a circle. Where does that circle come from? Where does it start? And where does it end? That's the tricky part. Aristotle was content in saying that those circles had been around forever, but we're much less confident. Plato and Thomas Aquinas, among many others, thought the rational soul must come from somewhere else, 
it must be eternal and exist independent of the body. They were, however, quite comfortable with vegetable and animal souls being natural and mortal. Sometime during the Enlightenment, we lost this subtlety when talking about souls. This may be a good thing. It rested heavily, at least in the Middle Ages, on some idea of souls wanting things. And that seems too anthropocentric. Do broccoli really have desires, intentions, proper ends? At the same time, we lost our meaningful ways of talking about the circular processes, the hard problems of life. Biologists have been struggling ever since with language for growth, function, and fitness that don't run afoul of that problematic sense of wanting. Fitness is about the best interests of an organism or a gene in biology. But even the concept of interest is still dicey. I study the history of vegetable souls, the natural, mortal, circular processes of growth and reproduction in humans, animals, plants, protists, bacteria, and arguably viruses. We know that organic molecules get caught up in these complicated networks undergoing natural selection. We say that those networks have functions derived from past success snapping up organic molecules. And we are absolutely baffled about how such a circular process could have started in the first place. It is my hope that by paying close attention to the cycles of nutrition, I can better understand what we mean by life. I think that the concept of souls, just like the zombie broccoli and the aliens, uncover something about what we mean when we use the word life. Is there something about life that calls for explanation beyond physics and chemistry? Can I say that a protein objectively has a function? Or is that just a convenient way of talking about polypeptides? Specifically, those polypeptides I happen to find in organisms. Can I say that a gene or an organism or a population has interests? Are brains just an egg way of making more eggs? We know what aspects of life we expect to find together. We find zombies scary because they have some, but not all, of those aspects. Hunger without growth, for instance. You would have no difficulty understanding me if I told you Bob had turned into an animal, or even a vegetable. You'd know that I thought he had lost the power of reason, or perhaps motion and sensation. But those are very emotional examples. I'd prefer to start with the very simple question of zombie broccoli. How do we know when the broccoli is not right with itself? And I like to ask about aliens. What is it we hope to find? And what makes Earth life so interesting that we want to find something like it elsewhere? Then, when we return to questions about life and humanity, when we look at the very serious questions of ethics, life and death situations, we can say that we've thought about these issues, looked at what science and theology can say about who we are as living things, as moving things, as rational things, and how all of that fits together. So that's my quick summary of what I'm doing. Time for discussion. Thanks a lot, Lucas. That's fascinating. And I was trying to figure out what you meant by zombie broccoli up until the moment when you defined it, but that actually makes complete sense to me now. And I think I might use that term whenever it's appropriate, because I've thought a lot about what about you know about the religious concept of the soul as well and and how that fits into sort of this evolutionary narrative to me you know i've I've thought a lot about in particular how 
there are aspects where religion and science may clash, and this is one of them. Maybe not even clash, but just where there's an unresolved issue, and one, this is one of them. Is there something called the soul, and if so, is it uniquely human? And if not, which evolutionary theory seems like maybe if there is a soul, it's got to be sort of more universal than what is a vegetable soul? You know, what's a microbial soul? My microbes are even more complicated. You didn't get there, but that's, you know, your specialty, of course. Um, a microbial community, what's an organism versus yeah. a community? And do they have one soul or many or a fungi, fungus, you know, where there's no cell walls? What, what, what kind of soul is that? So that's not a question. That's just me musing it. That I really appreciated the way you framed this because you've thought about it in a very specific way. So the floor is open to questions from others. So I'm not even sure if this is a question, but I was wondering if once a microbial mat, which as a community, has this novel feel that I've discovered recently, quorum sensing, right, where they understand each other, but we don't really understand how that quorum sensing is. Is this like an added level to their living complexity? Can you have souls that are more complex than others? So this is one area where I like Aristotle, and I think we might have, have gone astray because Aristotle sort of stacks his souls together. He doesn't think humans have three souls, an animal and a vegetable and a, a rational soul, although Plato flirts with that idea. Aristotle thinks that the, the human soul just has the vegetable and animal functions in it. And he's actually quite happy with there being a spectrum. He thinks there are animals that, that approach rationality. Um, and he thinks that there are vegetables that approach animality. So I wonder if one of the one of the issues that we run into is our fondness for discrete individuals. By the Middle Ages, the soul had become uh, the rational soul had become what's technically called subsistent, something unitary that could exist by itself outside of the body, and that turning it into a unit sort of made it impossible for it to fit into that spectrum that Aristotle had. So from an ethical perspective, I want humans to have unitary souls because I want to say, I have to treat everybody the same. I, I want to say that people have preferences and I have to respect the preferences of all people. So from an ethical standpoint, I'm sort of stuck with this unitary concept of the soul. But the more I look at the biology and even the philosophy, the more I think there's this continuum of processes going on and our attempt to lump it into individuals or into these various levels can get us in trouble. So I'm really trying to balance those things and also in theology trying to deal with the idea that maybe we're not as individual and independent as we like to think we are. And so even in theology I know the individual is necessary for ethics, but sometimes I wonder if it gets in our way in terms of sort of humility and recognizing our interdependence. So this reminds me a little bit of a talk that Aaron Goldman gave at a conference I went to a couple of years ago. I can't remember which one it was, but he was talking about how often, I think it was about semantics and the origin of life and, and definitions. And he was talking about how often people don't lump viruses in with what we call life because they're intrinsically parasites that can be argued, and depend on cells in order to replicate. 
the same meeting, Patrick Fortier, who is very big in the field of the origin of life and origin of viruses, said, well, if you look at a virus infecting a cell, what really is happening is that cell is now the virus. And you were talking about eating things. And in a way, what's happening is instead of the virus really sort of just like taking over the cell, that has become the virus. He called it a virocell. So in a way, the virus was eating the cell. And so people can argue whether viruses are alive or not. But Aaron was arguing that since viruses depend on other things, other cells also depend on other nutrients. They eat other things as well. So can we really call a cell alive because it also depends on other things? And so his, I think, final conclusion was the entire earth is a living being. And that's kind of the extent we can't, we can't define discrete units of life is sort of kind of along the lines of what you were just saying, I think. And then I had something else, but my thought just disappeared. I don't know. I was wondering what you had to say about that. <laughs> well, I mean, Aaron and I have talked a lot and I, I think we're largely on the same page there. I had a really good discussion today with some folks here at Harvard about how the idea of an individual in biology is not usually a philosophical definition. It's not meant to be delimiting. It tends to be a concept useful to a particular end. So when I'm doing population genetics, it's really okay for me to look at just, say, adult reproductive units as individuals and recognize that, well, they're going to have different stages in their life cycles where they're not as clearly individuals, but it's okay for the work that I do to say, look, we're just going to call individuals this for now. And I think there really is a great utility in looking at individuals. Perhaps just because I'm difficult, I like to poke at that a little bit and say, what questions do we then not ask? One of my favorites is um, if you look at ferns, there's a sporophyte and a gametophyte generation. And we're perfectly happy calling both sporophyte and gametophyte organisms. But in humans, if you look at haploid and diploid cells, we consider the diploid to be an organism, and we consider the gametes to be just an accessory tissue. And yet, when you start talking about a definition of life, well, if it's part of a genetic chain that's subject to natural selection, sperm and eggs qualify. If it's about metabolism, sperm and eggs qualify. If it's about being bounded cellularly, sperm and eggs qualify. So why is it that we think of brains making more brains by way of eggs and not eggs making more eggs by way of brains? And once again, for ethics, it becomes a serious issue because it's become so popular to talk about the origin of life in humans when we're not really talking about the origin of life, we're talking about the origin of the individual. If you're Richard Dawkins, you're actually saying it's the genes that are using eggs and brains to make more genes, right? Yeah, but that's assuming that gene is a nice coherent unit. And hopefully any of us in biology know that gene is almost as deadly as organism when it comes to definitions. Are we talking about chains of nucleotides that cause themselves to be replicated? So are, are transposons then are replicating units? One real popular thing in philosophy of biology has been to talk about gene types and tokens. Because Richard is not, in fact, talking about 
a single strand of nucleotides, which is attempting to persist forever. He's talking about a type, a pattern of nucleotides that instantiates itself in numbers of tokens. And when we start talking about inclusive fitness, it's not about a gene favoring itself as a string of nucleotides. It's a gene favoring itself as a pattern of information instantiated in numerous strings of nucleotides. I think we run into exactly the same problem with genes that we did with organisms. So I tend to favor a more dynamic approach, which is to talk about these cycles of things, which once again is very much in line with what Aaron does, that there are, are these networks that are self-reinforcing. And as you can see from the diagram, one of the real interesting dividing lines in the way we explain the universe is that broccoli only come from other broccoli. Well, really broccoli come from something else from the mustard family, apparently. But nonetheless, we've got this idea of a cycle and the, the, the vegetable aspects, the growth and nutrition, only show up where those things have previously shown up. The really hard question is how they came about in the first place. And likewise, those things we associate with animals, although they're less well-defined, the, the idea that there are things that when you poke them, they respond in interesting ways. They only come from other things that when you poke them, they respond in interesting ways. And I don't think anyone is seriously challenging the idea that the stuff that responds when you poke it is also the type of stuff that reproduces itself. So the two are, are linked together. They're stacked somehow. But there's also these interesting cycles and, and how it is we move from left to right across this diagram, how we get from not really uh, broccoli are, are bad there, but I was using broccoli. Um, but, you know, how we get from reproducing cells to animals or multicellular multicellularity, which would probably be the better pace biologically. Um, you know, how we get from metabolism to multicellularity uh, and how we get from multicellularity to reason and from reason to the ability to build radio telescopes, because we all know that's the, the goal of progress in biology. That's how you measure intelligent life, of course. You're yes. intelligent if you can build a radio transmitter. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how intelligent I am by that metric. Um, um, for, for any of the listeners who are not in on the joke, uh, I have a picture of Jill Carter, who's the head of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and in looking for signals from outer space, they have operationally defined intelligence as the ability to, to build radio telescopes. So... Of course, that touches on your point that individuality is maybe not precise for humans in that collectively we can build a radio telescope, but there's probably very few people, probably zero people that could actually build one start to finish if you were on a, a, a raw, a, a undeveloped planet and you had a very smart person and said, go and, you know, there's, there's some raw minerals locked in the rocks and, and you know, go invent your own tools and extract the iron and build wires and build a radio transmitter, that's an impossible task for any single human because we're, we're a civilization. Um, but that challenges this notion of individuality a little bit. And I think it has some pretty profound um, implications when we start talking about evolution and ethics and religion. It, for some reason, well, I could go into details ad nauseum, but over the last century, there's been a lot of concern that evolution means that living things are fundamentally competitive. 
And one of the really interesting things we see is that this process of cooperation leads to new circles in a way, new, new circles of, of reproduction, replication, maintenance, in a way that says cooperation is also fundamental to the way we look at life. And I think it would be a mistake to think that cooperation is somehow bad in and of itself. We need to be importing some sort of ethical premises in order to get there. But even if we did think competition was inherently bad, we would see in evolutionary biology that cooperation appears to be equally fundamental to the way we look at the uh, development and progress. Uh, sorry, two words that I tried to avoid. Um, in a way that we, uh, in how we look at the maintenance of living systems. Changing gears a little bit in terms of continuing your thought process on the stackability of souls, rather the thought process of Aristotle. Jacob, you have argued in the past that a star is alive. And based on this conversation, do stars have souls? That's interesting. If I could follow up on that before you respond, Lucas, because I was going to ask a similar question in that there's sort of two related but distinct questions you've touched on. There's what is life and there's what is a soul. And, and then related to what has a soul is what, ha you know, what is a soul and what has a soul. So for life, you know, we've talked about how you and Aaron Goldman and others have, have talked about it's very difficult to define where life begins and ends and what is a parasite and what is independent and maybe the Earth system is alive. And yeah, by extension, if the Earth system is alive, it's part of a bigger system that form as part of the solar system. And stars go through a life cycle. They're born and, and, and they have a, an adult life and an old age and they die and reproduce and even enhance it a type of genetic material in the elements. Um, so there is that argument. But related to that, do you need to have a soul in any part of that process? You can have complexity and you can say that there's this thing called life and maybe a star is alive, maybe it's not. But does it have to have a soul? And then likewise, a human we say is alive and we can even say is rational, but you know, what is the function of saying something has a soul or not aside from you know, some function in the afterlife. And if that's, if that is important, or if that's not important, sort of determines whether or not it matters to attribute that to the rest of life. First, I have to do a quick plug, keep your eye on philosophy and theory and biology, because I have a paper that will talk about exactly the question of why stars turn out to be one of the best intermediate categories. It depends on what work you're trying to do with soul. As I have presented it here, I'm associating soul with this idea of cycles, thing, things that only come from similar things. And it's unclear to me that stars fit that definition. They have a, a very light form of natural selection in that truly massive stars produce heavy elements that produce massive stars. But that doesn't quite get me all the way to natural selection. I suspect that where we really run into a problem with stars, though, uh, for the record, most definitions of metabolism that don't explicitly invoke life apply to stars. They've got internal complexity. They've got cycling, all of those things. Where I think we run into a problem is that we really do think that these living things have 
and I can't come up with a good word, so I apologize. I have tried lots. They have preferences. We, we think of them functioning better or worse. And no one looks at a brown dwarf and shakes their head sadly and says, this is a failed star. What they do is they say, this is just another outcome of physical processes. And yet somehow we really do have in our mind an idea of a sick broccoli or a failed broccoli or a dead broccoli. And we I will actually point out that an astronomy textbook that we used at the University of Minnesota for undergrad uh, described Jupiter as a failed star, but then noted that you might have a better perspective considering it a very successful planet. Yes. I don't know. It's not nearly as successful as Earth. Or maybe it's a sick, you know, maybe Earth is a sick planet because it's got this hideous infection on it. I don't know. And um, we're dependent on it as a shielding mechanism so we don't get bombarded too much. Yeah. I have been particularly intrigued about the about this question of preference. We very intentionally scrubbed purpose and proper ends out of science. And I think in many ways that's a good thing. You know, I really don't want to think about my sodium atom wanting to associate with a chlorine atom in any but the most metaphorical of ways. Sodium atoms don't have intentions and desires. And yet in biology, we're stuck with what Ernst Mayer calls programs. We're stuck with these, these patterns of carrying out algorithms that produce particular ends. And that works for us mostly because we have taken the terrible metaphor of a computer, which we don't think of as alive, despite the fact that computers don't happen without living things to make them. So they are in some way an accessory tissue. And we have read that back into biology as though we could construct a non-biological way of looking at biological things. But we, we still have this, this program or this preference that we need to deal with, even when we're looking at something as simple as phototaxis, we think that a bacteria that can get closer to the light is somehow achieving something that its neighbor cannot. Very interesting food for thought. Any other questions for Lucas? If you look in the group chat, Zach has one. So Zach says, a bit speculative, but along similar lines, do you think that one form of reasoning can fully recognize another in the cosmos if they are underpinned by completely different biological or physical computational methods. I'm looking at your delineation between animal and human by way of one possessing reason, but also just juxtaposing biological approaches, computation exhibited by slime molds versus abstract mathematical linguistic computations that humans seem to prefer. With the 1972 Tarkovsky film Solaris always in mind. <laughs> Yes, a very provocative movie. Um, and I was thinking about the slime molds too, and the, this question of, of optimizing. Slime molds can, so, can solve, I think this is what you're talking about, slime molds can solve uh, shortest path problems. I think so. The, the real issue, I suspect, is not one of rationality as something that exists independent of the medium in which it exists, which, incidentally, Thomas Aquinas is quite happy with. He says that, that we are intellects that uh, happen within bodies and that those bodies fundamentally affect both the way we do and the way we should reason. 
I think it's less a question of abstract reason or intellect as it is a question of whether we have similar ends. We like to solve shortest distance problems, and so we recognize that slime molds also solve shortest distance problems. I don't know that we would be able to recognize aliens if they didn't have some common interest with us. Although the most common interest that we usually imagine is the repurposing of organic matter. That is to say, it's easiest to recognize aliens that eat us, which we probably don't want to run into, or aliens that we might eat, which raises a whole nother set of philosophical problems. I think that's very interesting, the idea that you know, we select for things we care about. And so I mean, there's this application to extraterrestrial life being that which we can only recognize. But even within our own planet and the life that's here that we only know a little bit about, yeah, we're only going to look for certain traits that are things that we are, you know, you know maybe, maybe that solving the traveling salesman problem is really trivial and humans are the only ones that have trouble with this. And, you know, when... When we get discovered by some galactic empire someday, they'll take pity on us because, you know, our brains just never wired to solve, you know, exponential polynomial problems. I don't know. So, <laughs> Lucas, this has been a great discussion. Are there any final questions for Lucas before uh, we sign off? If not, well, listeners, thanks again for tuning in. It's been uh, Beer with BMSIS. You can check us out online at bmsis.org slash podcast. And we will see you again next month in November. Thanks again. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you. Bye. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.